This is Dr. Jason Remenick, CEO and founder of Thalamus, and you're listening to Thalamus Grand Rounds, the premier podcast built by Graduate Medical Education for Graduate Medical Education. Whether a program coordinator, program director, GME administrator, DIO, or applicant, join me and my guests as we discuss hot topics in innovation in the residency and fellowship recruitment process. Welcome to another episode of Thalamus Grand Rounds. You're about to listen to my conversation with Dr. Kyle Leggett, Assistant Professor of Family Medicine in the University of Colorado Department of Family Medicine. We spoke about GME workforce trends and their broader implications, and Kyle shared a ton of insights that are valuable for everyone in the GME community. For that reason, we've decided to split it into two episodes. Enjoy part one, and stay tuned for part two coming out soon. Our topic today is GME workforce trends and their broader implications. And diving into those topics with me is my guest, Dr. Kyle Leggett, Assistant Professor of Family Medicine at the University of Colorado Department of Family Medicine, where he recently completed a fellowship in health policy and politics. He is also a scholar at the Eugene S. Farley Jr. Health Policy Center. Kyle, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Jason, for having me. I'm excited to be here. For sure. So let's start with the basics. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work to and within GME? Sure. Um, you know, as a practicing physician, I think uh, I have some expertise of living through the graduate medical education GME system. I did my residency at the University of Colorado Family Medicine Residency Program. I was a chief resident and I also was president of our house staff association. So that means at the University of Colorado, I helped represent 1,200 residents and fellows to the hospitals and to um, you know, our different leadership across campus. And that kind of gave me some insights into graduate medical education funding and different um, GME issues on campus, especially at a large academic health center. Um, and then in my work at the Farley Center, or the Eugene S. Jr., <laughs> I'll just call it the Farley Center. But uh, with my work at the Farley Health Policy Center, I do uh, quite a bit on physician workforce trends and then on graduate medical education uh payment, reform, and finance, and governments, governance. Uh, those are kind of the areas of some of my policy work. But really, all of that pales in comparison to the real reason why you know I got involved in graduate medical education reform efforts in the first place, and that really starts with patients, like many of our physician stories. And so when I was a second-year resident uh, early on in that um, training, I actually very, very much remember meeting a, a patient whose name I'll, I'll just call Sarah. Um, and I remember being at the beginning of my clinic and looking at my schedule for the day. And I saw this hospital follow-up for a 50-year-old woman who had newly diagnosed heart failure and pulmonary hypertension. And the more I read through her chart, the more I kind of felt my intestines gather up into a knot. Uh, she had never seen a doctor until this hospitalization. She was morbidly obese. She was on oxygen at discharge. She had depressive symptoms, pain. And so later that morning, I met Sarah. And in walked this ruddy complexion, morbidly obese woman. I remember her edematous feet kind of straining against the straps of her sandals. And she had the plastic tubing of her oxygen nasal cannula in place. And as any good junior resident does, I started the visit by agenda setting. And a whirlwind of checklists later, we had adjusted her diuretic regimen, her heart failure medications. We had developed a plan to treat her depression and her pain. And I'd even rebandaged the blistered skin from her lower extremity edema and swelling. And so at the end, I said, Sarah, let's plan a two-week follow-up and we can start tackling these other issues. 
And I watched as she, as she visibly blanched in front of me. And she said, there's no way I can do that. That's impossible. And I come to find out that she lives over an hour away from my clinic and that there's not a single physician office closer who took her insurance. And she can't afford to take the full day off of work or pay the copay to see me twice in the same month. And so I just kind of went into autopilot mode. I referred her to social work and care management, and she left, and I finished the rest of my clinic day without issue. But I remember driving home and having the adrenaline of clinic wear off, and I found myself thinking about her case, and specifically, why isn't there a physician in her town or one that takes her insurance within 100 miles between her house and my office? And during that second year of residency, I was already struggling with burnout and moral injury, and this case really ate at me. And it's because I realized that four years of college and four years of medical school, and at that point, two years of residency and training hadn't actually given me the tools to heal Sarah. I felt really equipped to deal with her medical diagnoses, but I felt helpless to actually change the underlying problems. And that helplessness, more so than anything else, really weighed on my shoulders and dragged me down. And there were times when I didn't know if I'd want to continue in medicine at all. But luckily for me, a few months after meeting Sarah, I was in a didactics lecture on health systems with a faculty member, Dan Burke, who was actually talking about the physician workforce. And he was explaining to a group of us residents how the current GME system fails to meet the workforce needs in the U.S. and fails patients like Sarah. But even more importantly, he described policy efforts to try and fix the system. So I remember going up to Dan under Dr. Burke at the end of this lecture, and I asked, how do I get involved? Because I knew that I needed to be a part of the solution or that I might not even finish residency. And that conversation is what led me to the GME Initiative, which was my first grassroots policy and advocacy organization. It led me to attend national conferences on physician workforce issues in GME, and eventually led to Washington, D.C., where I get to speak with legislators about these issues and share stories like Sarah's and others to try and promote change in the system. And it's what led me to pursue that health policy fellowship. So I now can work on GME and physician workforce issues on a daily basis. And the upside is I no longer feel burned out when I see Sarah or other patients like her, because I know that I'm working towards systems level solutions and policy changes through organizations like the GME Initiative and the Farley Center. That's a, that's a really powerful story and a great introduction. And uh yeah, I, I think just in terms of physicians and, and, and our learning, obviously we can talk about statistics and, and, and pathology and, and pathophysiology and all these different things, but these narrative stories that we all encounter along the way can just be overwhelmingly powerful. I'm sharing, sharing one from my own. I remember reading a book in college uh, in a medical sociology course I was in called Mama Might Be Better Off Dead that really talked a lot about the distal and proximal causes of disease and the social determinants of health as well. And then even practicing in, in residency, um, we had a, a pediatrics clinic in, in Atherton, California, which is one of the most expensive zip codes in the country. Uh, but we served patients from East Palo Alto, which is much one of the much poorer areas in that state. In, in the area for, for Silicon Valley kind of Bay area and uh, was at one time, even a food desert, which was almost impossible to believe on the, on the peninsula in the Bay area there. But at the same time, I had a pediatrics patient come in who was also morbidly obese, had a uh, glucose that was way high His HbA1c was, was, I don't remember the value, but it was very, very high. And he, he, didn't know he had diabetes or what diabetes was. And in asking more questions, it was more 
well, what, what does your diet even consist of? And he was drinking gallons of Hawaiian punch a day because he thought that it was healthy. And so he thought he was trying to help himself. And it was just uh, a big issue, obviously, with health literacy as well. But these are just how do you help these patients when you need to start really at square one and, and are there systems to help them? So yeah, I, I your story resonated with me really well. I'm, I'm, it's amazing to hear how, how far you've gone with it. And, and I think it's a great introduction into the, today's discussion, obviously, which is on sort of the, the physician workforce and such. And so can you discuss with us the current state of affairs regarding the GME workforce and, and trends of what's going on in the country? Yeah, of course. So I think really when we talk about trends in the physician workforce, um, there's really a few things that need to be highlighted. And in terms of, you know, the things that aren't working, because there are a lot of things that do work and we have an amazing physician workforce. So I'm not going to spend time on those things because they're awesome and they work. But the things that currently don't work or that need to be addressed are the fact that we have a mismatch between specialties and healthcare needs. And I can kind of talk a little bit more about that. But we also have a geographic maldistribution of physicians compared to where people actually live across the country. And you can see that state by state, and you can also see it within states. And then there's other issues like a lack of or insufficient diversity within the physician workforce. And that can include, you know, LGBTQ physicians uh, by race and ethnicity. And then, you know, as healthcare becomes more complicated, or as we incorporate things like telehealth that was catalyzed by, you know, the COVID pandemic, how do we address those gaps in medical knowledge? So those are kind of the four main things that I kind of see or that I talk about often when we are discussing GME workforce trends or physician workforce trends. So I'll kind of go back to that mismatch between specialties and healthcare needs. Um, you know, in the U.S., we have the vast majority of our physicians are non-primary care physicians, which is very different than most of the world. Most of the rest of the world, when we look at comparable countries who, you know, we tend to compare our health outcomes to or our physician workforce to, they have closer to 50% of their physician workforce is primary care or general practitioners. You know, there's a lot of different names for these. And so, for instance, in Canada, somewhere between 50 and 53% of their physician workforce is uh, primary care. And yet in the U.S., it tends to be closer to 30%. Um, and, you know, it kind of depends on how you define primary care and who works within primary care, but it's certainly not 50%. Um, so that's kind of one area where we have a maldistribution by specialty, and it kind of depends on who you talk to as to how big of an issue that is. But many of our professional medical organizations, including the AAFP, the American Academy of Family Physicians, and others have kind of said, well, at the very least, we need to set a goal of increasing our primary care physician output. Um, as we go forward to try and address that distribution or maldistribution. Very interesting. I think it, it really speaks to how the larger health system also can drive a lot of training among specialties and who's going into those specialties and also what happens once that gets into the greater physician workforce after training and what that potentially means for patient populations and, and, and geographic areas, et cetera. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, you know, when you look at, for instance, the AAMC's um, work, most recent workforce report, I mean, they really talk about one of the issues that physicians and the physician workforce needs to address is that care is becoming increasingly specialized. 
And so actually a lot of the demand projections that the AAMC um, utilizes or they create are reflect the idea that care for an aging population has to become more specialized um, with a trend towards increased specialization of the physician workforce as well. And it's interesting because not everyone agrees that that's the direction to go in. So, you know, even within our own medical professional organizations, when you look at workforce projections or trends, there's not complete agreement around what are the right factors that are driving those trends and what are those projections. Yeah. And of course, you know, a lot of people have seen the data with the AAMC and that there'll be a shortage of 54,000 to 139,000 or so physicians over the next decade um, that, that's projected to affect both primary care and, and non-primary care specialties. Um, what what trends are, are we seeing as to how this will impact the physician workforce? I mean, there's a couple of things. We can look, for instance, at the most recent match day data um, to kind of help us and see, well, what happened this year in 2022 with our match? And, you know, talking or going back to this idea of primary care and then specialty and kind of that distribution, and even the AAMC kind of makes that distinction, who's in each category. You know, what we saw or what we saw in the match day data is actually the number of positions in family medicine actually declined Um for the first time in a number of years, which is concerning considering that family medicine makes up the majority or is the largest single specialty that makes up primary care physicians in the US. So if I remember correctly, the family medicine match data is that they offered a couple more positions. Um, They offered about 4,900 positions, but they actually matched 23 fewer students in 2022 than in 2021. Which, you know, if we're thinking about trends overall, trying to grow our primary care workforce, seeing a flattening or actually a decrease in the number of family medicine or graduates from medical school who match into family medicine is concerning because we're not growing that primary care workforce. And, you know, the current goal for the AAFP is 25 by 2030, meaning 25% of um, medical school graduates pick family medicine by 2030. No, it's, it's it's very interesting, and it's data we have a really big interest on our end. We just had a forum kind of reviewing a lot of the match data, and I processed and analyzed a lot of it myself. And yeah, family medicine in terms of unfilled positions was usually is the highest in terms of percent unfilled positions, but was only one of three specialties that had a higher uh, unfilled position rate than last year, sort of amongst the major residency specialties. Of course, emergency medicine at the highest uh jump from the year prior with almost a 7% increase up to about seven and a half percent of positions unfilled. But yes, it's, it's, it's certainly a lot we see. And also we, we track on our end, just the number of interviews that a program needs to do to fill their spots. So, you know, 30, 30 interviews for one match spot, 20 interviews for one match spot, et cetera. And we're seeing that family medicine, programs on average also have the highest ratio there as well. So they're having to interview more candidates for a given position as well. And then still, um, still having in some cases struggles matching, of course, uh, the, the disadvantage family medicine programs have is that they tend to be much smaller. They're also spread out over different geographic areas. Um, there's of course, rural, uh, track family medicine programs as well. 
Uh, but there's also a lot of those programs as well. And so, and so all of these different things each create, as, as you kind of alluded to, each each kind of specialty. And then that specialty then also translates into the greater physician uh, recruitment, uh, physician, uh, attending physician market and, and just healthcare overall. Uh, but it's just really interesting to see how, and when you think about it, obviously, that this is a pipeline into the physician workforce, each specialty and each each training program, et cetera. And so, yeah, no, I, I agree with I agree with you entirely. What what else are we seeing here? Yeah, I think another thing to keep in mind when we talk about projected shortages, for instance, of physicians across the U.S. is thinking about, well, what is the per capita number of physicians in the U.S. compared to other countries that we tend to compare ourselves to? And I know that's not a perfect comparison, you know, but it's some of the best comparisons we have. So the 2019 or 2018 data around the U.S. is that in aggregate over all states, we have about 26 physicians per 100,000 people. And when we compare that to other countries around the world, I'll go to Canada again. Canada actually has only 2.4 physicians per 100,000 people. So it actually has fewer physicians per capita than the US does. But then other, you know, European countries that we sometimes compare our health outcomes or our health system to like Germany has 4.4 physicians per 100,000 people, um, you know, almost not quite double, but significantly larger than both the U.S. and Canada. And yet we know that when we look at health outcomes and other kind of factors that matter more than your physician per capita number, that there can be, you know, a country like Canada and a country like Germany or France who have these significantly higher physicians per capita and have better health outcomes than the U.S. So there's a lot of other factors in play here. Um, beyond just the number of physicians. But it does kind of beg the question of, do we really have a shortage of physicians, you know, as kind of demonstrated as we always hear about when in fact, some other countries that do as well or better than us have fewer physicians per capita. And so if so, why is that? And why do they not have the same type of physician shortage? No, it's it's really interesting. Of course, I know many medical school classmates and colleagues that ended up going into family medicine. My wife is also grew, grew up in Canada and Ottawa and her sister is a family physician in Canada. And I've often asked questions about the Canadian health system. Of course, it's, it's socialized healthcare. It's very different than here. Um, and, and they also have great outcomes and just a, great, a very strong healthcare system with the pluses and minuses like every other healthcare system. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely, I think there's just even a, a philosophical difference into the way that even family practice or family medicine is looked at in Canada versus the United States as well. Of course, the reimbursement model is very different also. Um, and, and certainly, um, you know, I, I, I will say almost without being, ha having been part of the primary care workforce, uh, primary care, family medicine, internal medicine, pediatrics are some of the hardest working physicians um, in, in medicine today, just because you have to, because of the amount of patients you need to see and just the breadth of medical conditions and, and levels of acuity and, and chronicity that, that you see as well. And so, yeah, I think it's it's really fascinating to look at other countries also because you start to see all of these other trends too, not only in training, but beyond and how it, how it ultimately affects health outcomes. So very, very interesting. Um, in, terms of the, in terms of the United States, um, how has this impacted this, this shortage or, 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 or the challenges that it's brought about impacted the growth of the GME workforce? Yeah, so we continue to see the physician workforce is growing, just not at the rate that it's projected that we need to grow. Um, and so 
a lot of times when you're talking about GME workforce or physician workforce, you hear the term bottleneck because the number of medical schools and the number of medical school positions has grown significantly faster than the number of GME positions. And so that kind of a lot of times when you hear people talk about a bottleneck in the physician workforce, they're usually talking about GME slots, funded GME slots. Um, And that kind of goes back to the Balanced Budget Act back in the 1990s, which was an attempt by Congress to essentially cut costs and cut the growth of cost by capping the number of GME, or I should say federally funded GME slots at a certain number. Um, And so it might lead us into a discussion about kind of, well, how is federal GME finance and how is that structured? Um, And so I'll take that opportunity to either dive right into that, or there's kind of one other piece that I think is kind of interesting around the physician workforce um, projections that I might address first and, you know, yeah, let's 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 stick with workforce, and then we'll definitely jump into uh, funding for sure. I think that's going to be a big part of the, a big topic of this conversation. Yeah. Right? Sure, I think the other piece that's really interesting is looking at the geographic distribution of physicians in the U.S. Um, and that you know is oftentimes tied to training, right? If you have a medical school in your state, if you have adequate GME positions and programs in your state, you're much more likely to retain physicians, right? There's really good data that medical students and residents tend to practice close to where they train. And so and when you look at states that don't have as many GME slots, they tend to have many fewer physicians per capita. But the range in the United States by state on just how many physicians we have in each state per capita is huge. You know, we look at states like Massachusetts and New York, and, you know, they have upwards of 400 physicians per 100,000 Uh, residents in the state. And then we go down and look at states like Mississippi and Idaho, and they have about 196 physicians per 100,000. So pretty much a twofold difference in the density and distribution of physicians. And so when you look at maps of the United States, it tends to be coastal. We have usually a higher saturation of physicians, and we're not talking about specific specialties and distributions, but just physicians in general on the coasts. And then a lot of our states kind of in the middle of the country tend to have fewer physicians per capita. And sometimes that's even more difficult because those people and those, or excuse me, those states tend to be more rural. And so, you know, in the big urban cities, we tend to have higher rates of physicians when in the rural uh, states where there's actually more distance between um, different cities, towns, and access to physicians, there's even fewer physicians per 100,000 people. And from political issues, you know, the reimbursement system is set up to provide higher reimbursement to those areas, right? So like the PRA, that per resident amount in New York is like $240,000 per resident. And in Idaho and Mississippi, it's about 8500 or $85,000 per resident. You know, it's like a threefold times increase in the amount of money that you get per resident in New York compared to in rural areas. So of course there are more training programs in New York in these concentrated urban areas. No, uh, geographic uh, trends in GME recruitment are kind of uh, really up our alley. We've done a lot of research in terms of what drives students to match at particular programs in particular states. And otherwise we started with a paper in anesthesiology and then we we have a one uh, in review right now looking at primary care. And for 
students, if, if they grow up in a state or go to medical school in a state, they have the highest likelihood of matching in that state. And that was across the board in every study we've ever looked at so far. Um, geographic distance wasn't as, as relevant. And as you move further and further away from those states to the neighboring states and the neighbors, neighbors, and so on and so forth, that effect kind of falls off. Um, and of course, if you're in California or New York, ton of GME programs, a uh, ton of medical schools as well, you can train a larger physician workforce. And, and if since you have more people in those states as well, they have more opportunity to even get into medical school to begin with. And then when you look at a state like Mississippi, which has only a few medical schools and a few GME training programs, you can see how that completely flips on its head and goes the exact other direction. So then you look at trying to match GME or physician workforce to patient populations becomes challenging as well. You have people moving all over the country. And when you look at applicant pools as a result, it tends to correlate very probably unsurprisingly to congressional maps and such as well. The, the larger population a state has, the more applicants they have, the more GME programs, the more medical schools, et cetera. And so I think it's just really interesting that when you take a step back and kind of look at it from this kind of macroeconomic geographic view, like it, that also tells a story. Hi, listeners. Jason here. Thank you for listening to part one of my conversation with Dr. Leggett. Stay tuned for part two coming soon.